Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Face. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. To face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So welcome to Face to Face. We're uh, joined uh, by a guest uh, here in Toronto by the name of Rob Mills. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, but I think uh, I'm going to leave most of that up to him. We actually have a live studio audience today. Matthew DeSero and Fred Stinson, two friends and two uh, fellow performers. In fact, my first, no, my second guest, Matt, Matthew DeSero. Check out his uh, podcast on Face to Face if you haven't already. So Rob, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks Excellent. for having me. Uh, you probably could hear all the applause in the background. It was... Uh, <laughs> David, 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 David. Okay, so, so Rob, uh, I thought it was just Fred and Matt that were here. No. Uh, so Rob, uh, Rob was executive producer at CBC, of uh, executive producer of Kids CBC for, for over a year, I think. Uh, pr- uh, executive producer and president of Radical Sheep Productions. He's a writer, he's an actor, he's, uh, he plays Jumanji. Uh, so so uh, Rob, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do and why the hell am I interviewing you? Yeah, I don't know why the hell you're interviewing me. I think we'll, we'll discover that as we go along. Um, I, I've, yes, I wear many hats. Um, I started out uh, as a performer 
and was doing theater and ended up working with uh, Jim Henson's Muppets starting back in 82 on Fraggle Rock. So I got to jump around inside Junior Gorg and do a bunch of other characters. And I worked with the Henson organization for about 15 years on various shows. And during that time was always driving myself towards uh, getting into production and uh, trying to make our own shows happen. And I partnered up with Cheryl Wagner, and we made a show called Big Comfy Couch. Mm. So most of our stuff has all been sort of geared towards children's work. And uh, from there, uh, not just producing, but also writing, and then I started hiring myself as a director because nobody else was going to. Right. And I ended up uh, on n- numerous shows of our own that we did. I was, again, wearing the multiple hats of writer, producer, director, performer. So were you ever on the other side of the camera? or? Have you, I mean, have, how much time have you spent in front of the camera? What, me, 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 my own face? Yeah. Uh, I, I like to hide my own face. I'm a puppeteer. So, so you've never actually... It's, I'm, I'm under the camera as opposed to in front of it. Yeah. How about any stage work? Any kind of theater? Yeah, yeah. Back before I, I got into the television stuff, which pays, which is why I stuck to that. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, the theater stuff I'd done was uh, mostly clowning, uh, Commedia dell'arte, uh, mime, God help me. Um, mask work. Uh, I did acrobatics for a while. I was performing on the street. I did some wow. legitimate theater. I was in a, some, what's legitimate theater? I was at uh, Theater Pass Mariah in a Sam Shepard play. That's about it. Okay. <laughs> so, so was it a conscious decision to go into working with kids TV? With I mean, that, to me, that seems like a real specialty right out of the gate. And it yet- does in a way, and it wasn't really a conscious decision. It just seemed, one, that's where the work was, and secondly, that's what I had already been being hired to do as a performer. I mean, starting with Muppets with Fraggle, and then got into Canadian Sesame Street, and I was performing and writing in there. And it just, like, one thing led to the other. A lot of my career path has not been conscious choices. It's always mm. been sort of stumbling into things and going, oh, I think I'll do this now. And then you look back and you go, oh, okay, there's, I understand where this was, pathway went. But I was just going to say, I mean, conscious it's, choice? it's no. without a doubt in, in all the podcasts that I've done so far and most of the interviews I've done over the years, that kind of comes out, that bubbles to the surface. The idea that I wasn't really sure where I was going at the time, but now that I've got 20 years to look back, it makes sense. The dots yeah. connect. It all kind of falls into place. Yeah. Right? But, there's but still, amount. there's moments where you're like, what was I thinking? Right, right. right. <laughs> Um, so not a conscious choice. Were you driven by, um, were you really, you know, you made, you made a crack about the money. Were you really driven by the money in that sense? I've or? never really been driven by the money except at that stage because it was a, a case of being able to eat or not. Literally okay. before I started with Muppets, I was a starving artist. Wow. I, I made $1,500 the year before I started with Henson. And so we'll be fifteen hundred for the year. For the year. Wow. Yeah. I was uh, eaten out of a lot of friends' kitchens and yeah, you know, I guess so. a lot of food everywhere I could. You get a job in a restaurant, you're just you're eating yeah. everything in sight when the manager's not looking at you. <laughs> right, right, right. That really is uh, redefining star- starving artists. Yeah. I always thought it was kind of a metaphor. <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't. And I, I used to be skinny. I'm not now. But, uh, right, yeah. right. So you've been blessed. Yeah. But no, the money was never really a driving uh, force behind. Yeah, it's great when you get the good paycheck and all that. But I was, I've always been sort of... Um, well, fortunate, and you know, and you're making the money, then you can have these kinds of choices. Uh, being able to say, "I want to do what's fun," right. and I'm not willing to put up with bullshit. And if something isn't, when something stops being fun, I stop doing it. And much to the consternation of my agent and some other people I've been working with, they just sort of go, "But, but this is what's happening now." It's like, yeah, I don't care. It's where, does the, where, where does the creative side fall into that? So you're not motivated by money; you're motivated by fun. Does it go a little deeper than that? In the sense sure. that. 
I don't know, I want to be this great example for children or nah. I've got these ideas that I want to communicate or I'm, I'm, I, I truly am an artist. I'm no longer starving, so therefore now I can actually get to the real work. Yeah, there's a bit of that, plus the money. Um, <laughs> now, now it, it's hard to separate the money. Well, I, well let, me, let me preface that. Um, when I was working in broadcast television, when the bulk of my work was in broadcast, yes, you had to consider the money. One, because you had to, a lot of financing that you had to raise in sure. order to make yep. these shows. Yep. And then you've got an obligation to pay off your investors and all this stuff. So, yes, you have to be concerned with money on that regard. Um, and, but a lot of the times the money that was coming in for my various fees and all the different roles that I was doing was getting funneled back into the company itself and the work that we were doing. So it wasn't about you know, grasping at the cash and stuffing it into my own pockets. Um, the idea of doing something just for fun, no, I mean, it's got to be worth something. There's got to be a reason to do the show, whether it's a television show or a production for a web series or, you know, whatever kind of writing. Uh, I'd like to think that there's some substance to it. And especially when we got into doing the kids stuff, it was at a time when there was a lot of kids material that was going out there. It was just pure garbage, and you see mm-hmm. more and more of that now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was... Uh, you know, where the, the the marketing, the, the the merchandising was driving the content. The only reason the shows existed was to sell the toys. Right. And the right. toys existed before so the show did. Star Wars episodes one, two, and three, isn't it? Well, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> He-Man, Master of the Universe, yeah. and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, sure. And, and Barney, of course. I mean, yeah. that, 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 so when we did, we got into doing things like of our own, like uh, Big Comfy Couch and, and Rufus the Dog and other shows, uh, there was always that sense of, okay, we want to make something that's worthwhile for the kids. I mean, I've had discussions with the broadcasters themselves where they admit they're not programming for the kids. They're programming for the caregivers. We want to give something safe that the parents feel comfortable setting their kids in front of the TV. And whether the show itself is any good or not, we don't care. Wow, isn't that's a great phrase? Programming that should be the title of your book. <laughs> I'm writing a book. Care, I didn't know. Care, well, I thought you were. Yeah, uh, maybe out of this podcast. Maybe. Hey, just a little plug for Rob Mills. Robbo Mills, R O B B O M I L L S dot net. That's Rob's website. We're nowhere near the end of the interview, but I thought I'd get that in there now. And you did mention Rufus the dog. Yeah, and that's R U F U S the dog. It's actually two S. Oh, it's two Fs. Sorry yes. about that. Um, it's pronounced Rufus, but it's spelt Rufus. Why? Spelled, I don't know. Yeah, neither do I. Um, <laughs> anyway, check out either of those sites and uh, find out some more about what Rob's up to right now. Um, so, so tell me a little bit more about programming for the caregivers. Yeah, so, but I mean, I mean is that, it really that bad? It is. The, office, the, the, the boardrooms or wherever they're making these decisions, the Tim Hortons, it's kind of like... It's, this has nothing to do with the actual content for the kids sure. or about growing stronger uh, children who care about things like anti-bullying and yeah. so on. This is about pretty much keep mom and dad happy and the babysitters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and it's astonishing when you sit there because in public discussions, whether on panels or something like that, they're, uh, they pay lip service to, oh, yes, we're looking for the best stuff and we're, we're always concerned about what's, what's good for the children and blah, blah. And it's complete nutter bullshit. They're not. Hmm. Um, the exception being perhaps uh, the, the public broadcasters who, one, they've got an educational mandate they've got sure. to fulfill. Yeah. But at the same time, they're constrained because they have to play it safe. And they can't necessarily make choices that they know are really, really good. I've had discussions with public broadcasters where they go, this is a really great show idea. This is fantastic. We're never going to air it. And it just, it just doesn't, and you're like, what? Oh, you've heard that before. Oh, that was yeah. a great delivery. Yeah. It's just right on one big long line of sentence. How, Maybe, ma- how many of your ideas that you've pitched that have never gone anywhere? 90%. Wow. Yeah. Really? That yeah. high? You have to keep pitching and keep, keep, keep pitching and keep pitching and keep pitching. And it's, as a small independent producer, it's yeah. very, very difficult yeah. to keep up 
doing that. You get into a, a larger company that's been producing for a while and has a, a track record. We had a track record when I was running Radical Sheep. Uh, but and you were that for quite a while, right? Yeah, about 15 years. 15 years. Yeah. And we did a lot of shows, got a lot of awards, made a lot of money for our investors, and it was great. But we weren't quite at the level that would sustain itself right. for that kind of work. Because television is an endless maw that must be fed. Right. And uh, if you're not able to maintain that pace of, of feeding into these things, uh, you fall by the wayside. Um, larger companies that can arrange for multiple uh, co-productions and they, they, they come in every year and they've got a slate of shows they've managed to do because they, they've, they've got, they bundled them all together. That, t- that takes a lot of work, takes a lot of effort, a lot of staff. And if you're a smaller production company, it, it's very difficult to maintain that stuff. And so we would sort of rise and fall upon our fortunes of whether we got a show in production so that I year. Wanna, so much I want to talk about with respect to Canadian TV. Let's get back to that yeah. in a second. <laughs> the best idea you've ever pitched that didn't play. Oh, Lord. Oh, it's been so many. I bet. Uh, okay, or maybe the worst idea that you pitched that did play. How's that? Oh. <laughs> uh, Land of Hands. Land of Hands. Yeah. I don't know that one. Yeah, well, it came and went, mercifully. <laughs> uh, mercifully. It, it wasn't a bad show for what it ended up being. It wasn't a bad show. Everybody who worked on it put in very, very good work. And it got a number of Gemini nominations. Wow, okay. And uh, J.P. Houston who did music uh, did a wonderful job on it. The initial idea for it was it was meant for an older audience, okay. uh, not, not adults. Again? Uh, n- 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 the, the, the pre teens. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, and the humor in it was a little more roughhouse. And it was all about these um, uh, prehistoric characters who'd be running around having these adventures in, in the past I mean, cavemen and dinosaurs, basically. But the hook for it was that everything in the show was all made up of human body parts. So if you hold up your hand like it's a tree, we would make the hands into trees. It was literally a land of hands. So oh, all, like all Terry, the trees and... Terry Gilliam. Like, we had a lot of that kind of thing. Yeah. And the characters themselves, the, the caveman characters, we were doing that old trick where you shoot the, your head upside down. So your chin... Sorry, I hit the mic. Your chin uh, is the top of the head, and you stick little eyeballs on, on your chin there, yeah, and then yeah. you've got a little nose on right, your middle, right, right. and you get most, and then the rest of this, the rest of your face is covered by costume, and we would have these little puppet arms and do it all in green screen, and have these really weird characters going, and we had our hands being all these different, uh, I'm demonstrating, you can yeah. see it on your podcast, but using my hand as, as various kinds of yes. dinosaurs Looking and like creatures. thing from the Adams family. Yeah, 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 all these different things. Yeah. And so every element, all the leaves on the trees were all hands and everything else. And it just went on, and the design stuff for it was pretty incredible and at the last minute because of the way it was financed it was supply tv um they said well we want to put money in we want to split the license fee so it's between ytv and treehouse because we don't want that much money coming out of ytv's coffers we go fine we don't care you know just pay us the money so we can make the show and then at the last minute this is literally four weeks before we started shooting we already had 50 scripts written we were already building the characters and we were getting ready to shoot uh, they come back and say, because there's money from Treehouse, uh, it has to skew younger. Oh, boy. So you have to change the entire concept, change the characters, and change the look and feel of the thing. And you've got four weeks to do it. Go. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I felt that the entire thing was compromised. And because of that, a lot of the design aspects of it were really shortchanged. And I got very pissed off, and I was very grumpy through the entire thing. So right, right. The show itself, what it ended up being, if you didn't know any of that stuff behind it, people would go, hey, that's really cool. It looks like a nice little kid's show. Oh, so that's good. But so it's just yeah, the politics sure, relationship. No, it's the, it for me, it I knew what it could have been, and right, that just uh, right. continues to eat so, me away like acid. Does, does, 
<laughs> Maybe next time when we talk, you can tell me how you really feel about it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, lots of jokes about Canadian TV and, and where it used to be and where it is today. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, maybe you can help me understand shows like, um, oh, come on, uh, Flashpoint, Ricky Blue. Uh, I don't I mean, some any of, the, of those. <laughs> some of the production value of what sure. you see is what that's called Canadian TV today is like miles ahead of where it was, kilometers ahead, light years ahead of where it was 20 years ago. Sure. From the beachcomber days. <laughs> yes. Right? right? Yeah. Um, Adventures in never, Rainbow Country. I've never known anyone to get into Canadian TV because it's a uh, that's where the money is. Well, right? it it's can just, it can be, but it's a know, very well, small, make, exclusive club. We make our money through tax credits. Yes, you know, yes. Well that's, well, that's true. I mean, the, job, the production end of things. The, a lot of producers uh, exist and and thrive because they're very adept at playing the game. Right. And you know they know how to raise the money. They know how to leverage the tax credits, and they they know they're going to be getting their fees. And the show itself isn't going to have any legs after that. And that's all they're doing is taking their upfront money and then piling another carcass onto the, the right. pile of old shows. Right. You know? Yes. <laughs> I love my visual metaphors. Yeah, no, um, good. The, uh, but what's happened was in the last little while, uh, they've been finding there is a U.S. market for these shows because the U.S. market is constantly expanding with the different specialty mm-hmm. channels and mm-hmm. things. And they know that they can produce cheaper up here than they can down in the States. So if they're able to emulate a U.S. Uh, product, and do it at a lower cost, yeah. then they'll buy it. I mean, it's genre programming, you know, yet yeah. another cop show. Uh, but what's nice about Flashpoint is it takes place in Toronto. Yeah, it's all, all filmed in Toronto. Yeah, they're not, blue, but, they're, but they're not pretending that it's someplace else. That's right. That's yeah. what's outstanding yeah. about that. And the production value of what I've seen is very high. Sure. And the acting's great. The writing, yeah. I think, for the most part, is pretty crisp. And yeah. It's oh, yeah. Very American, really. Yeah, so well, that, but that's, that's their audience. They're not making a Canadian show. Right. They're making right. an American show. And right. that's why they succeeded. So is it still Hollywood North? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. we're still, you know, the... the, the <laughs> Wasn't there an Asian we're, in town called Hollywood? We're, we're still like, I was gonna, I'm looking for the right word without being politically incorrect. Yes, we're we're, we're still the uh, the cousin in the attic. <laughs> uh, yeah, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, we, we're the we're the cheap labor, and they can they can speak our language, and uh, you know, does most depending on the productions, they favor the West Coast because it's in the same time zone, and it's just a quick north south trip. Toronto, you know, we've got the Pinewood Studios going here, and feature film stuff happening here, television stuff. Sure, there's a lot of that. So before we come back to kind of what you're involved in and what you're up to right now, I'd like to hear how you're, you're sort of leaning now more towards the internet almost. Yeah. Um, tell me, there's a great quote, and I can't remember who it is, but television is chewing gum for the eyes. Yes. So I, tell me a little bit more about your take on TV as a media. You have kids. I do have kids. Yeah, I've got a five and a seven-year-old right yeah. now. My wife and I, Elizabeth, are talking about things like violence and video games and when do we introduce them to this movie and that movie and those kinds of things. And yesterday, in fact, we were watching clips of Jackie Chan sequences. Oh, great. Online. <laughs> and it was awesome. And so for the rest of the day, my son is talking about, Dad, what, do you think he would use like a Kleenex box? Or would he use like a lamp or maybe a coffee mug? <laughs> and like everything he picked up in the house, he wanted to know if Jackie Chan would use. To and the answer, of course, is yes. And that's exactly what I said. <laughs> I said, Spencer, whatever you can pretty much imagine, I think Jackie Chan would do it. And I saw some fight sequences that I've never seen before. Jackie Chan's amazing. They really are yeah, amazing. Yeah. There's this bit with a 10-foot aluminum ladder. I don't remember yeah. what film it's from. Yeah, I remember that. Holy cow, it's just awesome. The choreography and the the the, the, the work yeah. that went into that. Well, the outtakes during the end credits. <laughs> That's true. 
Yeah. Anyway, it was interesting because one of the sequences we watched was a bit more violent than, say, even, uh, I wouldn't even say Empire Strikes Back is violent, but for a five-year-old, mm-hmm. it's got some moments. So there was a couple moments where Jackie shot somebody and then stabbed somebody as well. He had a, a re- piece of rebar off a construction site and then it ended up going into some guy's gut. <laughs> So I'm sure he didn't mean to do it. That's right. <laughs> so Spencer says to me later, he goes, oh, you know what, Dad, there's a lot of fun, but I, I kind of like the ones without, without the guns, yeah. which I thought was kind of interesting for him to make that distinction at his age already. But anyway, so tell me more about that. I mean, I've, I've felt like TV has been low end for years, and I think it's like a pox in society. But when Uh-oh. you start to look at what's happening, there's some really amazing programming. Oh, sure. And yeah. some incredible stuff coming out we, in HBO and, and different things. There always the has been great shows that have been happening there, but there's always, always has been and always will be, a lot of garbage as well. Um, this was, the, was that you mentioned the thing, TV is chewing up to the eyes. eyes. Uh, there's also uh, theater is life, film is art, and television is furniture. Right. You know, uh, but it's true. A lot of the programming you see on TV, the only reason it's there is to keep the commercials from bumping together. Uh, the people who broadcast are not in the business of making shows for people to watch. They're in the business of selling their audience to their advertisers. That's what they do. The fact that you actually, in that system, get good shows that happen is remarkable, mm-hmm. considering all the bullshit you've got to go right. through to get right. a show on the air. Right. Um, the best stuff I think that's being done right now is on uh, HBO. I think you're going to see Netflix rising uh, to that same level. New, new series that Kevin Spacey's produced. Yeah. Um, well, what the hell is it called? Uh, well, it's based on a, a David Mamet script, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, House of Cards. House, House of Cards. Cards, thank you, yes. Yeah, and it's... Uh, Sounds great. It, I, I saw the first episode. It, yes, it's really well done. And directed by David Fincher. Yeah. Which yeah. is bizarre, but yeah. yeah, yeah so they're competing it really plays. with yeah. HBO. But uh, they're, they're on that level. Yeah, sure. Uh, and nobody expected that from yeah, them. That's true. Now, the whole the thing with the, the how the television market and internet uh, you know, is, is changing and affecting, TV was always in the process of dumbing itself down when they started getting into specialty channels and niche marketing yeah. and, and you know, getting these tiny little reality shows going because they were cheap to produce. And inadvertently, what they were doing was priming their own audience for being more accepting of the low-quality video that was becoming more and more available Mm. on the net. So you've got these short little uh, funny home video kind of clips that are showing up on YouTube. When YouTube emerged, that really put the nail in the coffin. And as the quality of the video online increases and the length and people's willingness to watch it longer and longer online, it became even more of a a case of uh, the TV industry cannibalizing itself. They fragmented themselves, and now they're sitting in a corner eating their own feet. Right, and right. you've got the internet is now taking over that. And also, not just because it's getting better online, but also because we now have these mobile devices, yep. we can watch it anywhere, and it's ubiquitous because it's available on your TV. So do the stats support the fact that TV is no longer going to even be furniture? So that, I mean... TV is going to become TV is going to become a part of the internet. Uh, right. Marsh McLuhan in 64, Understanding Media, said that uh, old media becomes content of the new media. Doesn't mean that television is going to go away. Just means the way that we get it is going to change. Right. right. But the way that the TV industry right now is reading that is, oh well, that means we're going to take over the internet, and the internet's going to be TV. And it's like, no, right. you're right. going to be a small part of the internet, right. and right. the rest of the right. internet is going to like eat your lunch money. Right. 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 <laughs> so you've had a bit of an internet uh, TV experience. In fact, yeah. um, you did, I believe, a, did a Kickstarter campaign to fund one of the. It was the Indiegogo. Yeah. That we used. Oh, in, oh, yeah. That's right. Or a Kickstarter-like campaign. Yeah. Sorry, I went all. <laughs> 
No, it was, yeah, it was fun. It was interesting. Um, I'd, I've gotten fed up with broadcast stuff. I've, I kept pitching, kept pitching, and just realized, you know, I don't even want to get, I don't want anybody to say yes, because then I got to go through all the hoops and everything else mm-hmm. and raise this huge amount of money and take on all this business stuff that I got to do. And I much rather prefer the immediate hands on ability that the net provides, uh, the, the web being able to produce your own shows on the web and say, okay, I want to do this. And I've got the resources, I've got a camera, I've got lights, I've got talented friends. And we can all work together and we can make a show. What's it going to cost me? Whatever it is that's out of pocket. I can put it on my credit card. I can do whatever. might not be the best quality, but I don't have to ask anybody for permission to do it. I don't have to go hat in hand to a funder or a broadcaster and say, please let me make my show. And then let them control how it's done or where it goes after that. So that is very, very liberating for me. And you were talking earlier about, you know, am I doing it just as an artist or whatever? It's Part of that is an activism on my, my, mm-hmm. my end, but also very much an artistic control of the things that I want to do and how I want to do them. So when we came up with the idea of doing Rufus the Dog's Christmas Carol, Rufus started out as a TV series. And when I left Radical Sheep, I got the rights to Rufus with that. And I immediately put all the old shows up online for free so people could watch them. And now we're producing new stuff for that. So we'll be doing new episodes called Rufus Rhymes. But um, the other uh, back when we did um, Rufus the Dog's Christmas Carol, And it was a half-hour Christmas special. And it wasn't for broadcast. It was for the web. And we said, we're going to do this ourselves. And we need to raise some money so we can get a studio, some basic props, some costume stuff that we need. We've already got these puppet characters. Uh, All we need to do is raise a bit of money. So we went on Indiegogo and said, we need it for this. We didn't raise everything we wanted to raise. We didn't quite get all the money. So we weren't able to shoot in a studio. So we said, ah, screw it. We'll shoot in my living room. So we hung up a big, huge green screen, and we took over the whole house for props and costumes, and the place was a mess for a week. Right. But in four days, we shot a half-hour Christmas special uh, with uh, four original songs, and uh, all puppet characters, and the backgrounds were all CG. It took a while to get those finished. But then once it was finally done, we've got this amazing Christmas special that every year we're going to be able to flog online, sell it on DVD. There's going to be a book version coming out. Wow. So yeah, and That's without nice. having to get a pat on the head from yeah, some corporate I mean, knob. What Orson Welles could have done with his living room? Right? Oh man, Orson with a phone in his pocket coming out, you'd be sh- <laughs> oh, just amazing. I was just the other day watching. Um, there was a documentary on him uh, called One Man Band. Oh, I don't know that. One. Yeah, uh, his uh, his lover Osha Kadar. I can't pronounce her name. She was uh, with him right right to the very end, and she's sort of been taking care of his estate and stuff. And so she was uh, instrumental in getting this documentary of him done. Wow. But it was very much this, this whole notion of he just didn't want to be a part of the, the, the larger scheme of it. Yeah. Well, he didn't want anything to do with the system, it seems. And yet yeah. he knew he was in it. Sure. But he critiqued it from inside, which yeah. I got a huge amount of respect for. It was a great thing that he said at the AFI uh, Lifetime Achievement Awards, and they got him up there. And he says, you know, obviously I stand out amongst the crowd and yes. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And he says, yeah. you know, in this age of supermarkets, and he said, gestured out across the audience, consider me your local grocer. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Yeah, it's really things. I mean, to say things are changing is almost uh, uh, meaningless in a way. It's just it's changing so rapidly. Yeah. Um, so you know, we, I was at the film festival a couple of years ago, and I think before every every film, the trailer was a little thirty second movie mm-hmm. that they were showing that somebody had shot on their cell phone. And I just kind of thought, wow, maybe in ten years, Tiff's going to have the thirty second category, <laughs> and you'll you know come in and get to see twenty of those in a one sitting or something. Well, you know? we're hoping next, not this year, but next year, Tiff will have a web series category, and uh, they'll be uh, showcasing the work that's coming out of uh, this country 
uh, and others that is amazing. I mean, we've, I'm part of a group of people. We're setting up a nonprofit organization that's going to be representing um, independent web series creators all the way across Canada. Hmm. And uh, we started out as a group here in Toronto, and we had a Facebook group, and we get together once a month, once every two months, and have beers and say, how's it going for you? Oh, right, this is terrible. Right, oh, I need right. some lights. I got some lights. Oh, great. Hey, you right. want to be in my show? Right. And just ha, yeah. started ballooning from that. We now have over 700 members just in wow. Toronto alone. That's amazing. Hamilton has got so a really thriving group. already, but do you actually have we, a nonprofit yeah, status? It's been going, we've got the nonprofit status, but that's uh, we're still dotting our I's, getting the articles and doing right, all that right. stuff. But prior to that, I mean, which, it's just community. And everybody's sharing. It's quite different from what's going on in the States. There's the, the LA web uh, community is very different. I mean, it's, it's an industry town. Everybody's very, very competitive. Yeah. And they're all sort of elbowing. And everybody really wants to be on TV yeah. or make a feature film. Right. And so they're looking at the web thing as just a stepping stone. Whereas this community is like, this is a vibrant medium in and of itself. And shows like Out With Dad, Jason Lever's show, or uh, yeah. Jill Gollick's Ruby Sky P.I. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there's a new one called Leslieville, which is really great. That. Pete Winning and the Pirates, Clutch, Guidestones. There's a whole bunch of these shows. And so, okay, so and they're, you, but they're doing really well. LA Web Fest, New York uh, Web Fest, uh, Marseille Web Fest. They're known around the world. And in each of these festivals, the majority of the submissions are from Canada. But and the majority of the winning submissions are, are from Canada. Any money, though? Some are. Yeah. Yeah, because you're only in it for the money, right? We established that. Uh, yes, yes. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a whore, and all I want is the bucks. Send me your bucks, folks. I'll let you watch my stuff if you send me cash. That's right. No, some people do it because they want uh, awards, they want accolades. Yeah. Some people do it because they're they're actually actively trying to raise money either through subscription or advertising revenue. Um, it varies. Some people go in without a clue as to how they're going to monetize it, and they stumble across it. Right, right. And other people have a big strategy, yeah. and it still doesn't work. watched a documentary recently, can't remember the name of it, online, about how to monetize mm-hmm. your TV production or your film or your documentary that you're going to make, about selling product before, about having DVDs to sell as you go around and you show it at schools, and all these different ways of coming up and with money to yeah. actually produce the film that you want to make. And I uh, bumped into a, a, a friend of mine I hadn't seen in quite some time. His son just finished film school in Vancouver. Well, he and dad are going to make a documentary film together. Now. Awesome. I mean, it's just, it's kind of a wild world that we live in and with from a media perspective. Well, it's you, crazy. Use, this, this, you use the word ubiquitous. Yeah. I mean, it's even more, I mean, can it be more than ubiquitous? It's just, <laughs> it's just, it's it's a part of our language. Yeah. Oh, right? yeah, exactly. I mean, You're able to, to quote and comment in video now in a way that you weren't ever before. And you know, one of the buzzwords in the, a few years back was always the democratization right. of media. Right. The ability to have, you know, pull a film studio out of your back yeah. pocket yeah. of your phone. You can edit, you can shoot, you can distribute all from that one little box. Now, more than that, you, there's other cameras and gear that you can get, which used to cost a freaking fortune yeah. to yeah. Try, pull yeah. this stuff sure. together. And now it makes it available to everybody. It doesn't yeah. mean that there's going to be all these wonderful things. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of garbage. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But there's going to be gems that rise up a out of, of that. A lot of experimentation. Yeah. Some pretty cool things will probably come yeah. out of that. And Francis Ford Coppola was talking about that back when he was accepting the Academy Award for uh, Apocalypse Now. <laughs> he was talking about, yeah, there's going to be this uh, uh, fat kid, this little girl in Kansas, who's uh, going to you know, make the next great feature film. Right. And everybody laughed at him. He was like, yeah, just watch it. Yeah. She's coming. Well, you know what? And in some ways... Uh, 
couple, uh, what I know of Apocalypse Now and the way they hobbled that together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was complete madness. Sure. Right? From oh, yeah. a financing perspective and Martin Sheen's problems and just everything. The weather and how long it took them to shoot. Wasn't it 18 months to shoot or something? Oh, yeah. It was crazy. Yeah, man. yeah. Because they, they went in, they ignored Roger Corman's advice and Malaria, went in during monsoon season. And all their, kinds of stuff. Had their sets blown away. So, in, in a way, I wonder how that parallels the Canadian film <laughs> today. You know? Well, it's different except all of, all of the shit we've got to slog through is bureaucratic. It's not right, actually <laughs> right, right. It's not actually on the ground. No stuff. No. Yeah, but it's, it's just getting back to the, the the producing stuff for the web. What's really neat about this is that uh, a filmmaker, however experienced or inexperienced, has the opportunity to reach a worldwide audience, yeah. making their own material, and as however they promote it or however they try to monetize it, there's a level of success that would be unattainable uh, through normal conventional methods of production and distribution. Um, I was just talking about the monetization thing. Some people stumble into it. There's a group out in uh, Montreal called Movie Seals, and they've been doing a lot of uh, genre feature film direct-to-DVD stuff. But they said, well, let's do a, a web series. And they did a thing called Heroes of the North, because they knew a bunch of stunt performers who looked pretty good, and they thought, oh, we'll just dress them up in ridiculous-looking spandex, and they can punch each other in the head and crack jokes, and they'll be real, true Canadian superheroes. And they put it up online, and response was pretty good, and then they got people saying, well, is there going to be a graphic novel, man? And they're like, yeah, yeah, there's going to be a graphic novel. So they could put together a graphic novel of it, put that out, and people were clamoring for more episodes. They're like, oh, man, what are we going to do? So they actually had an audience build up around them, that they didn't, they were reaching out, but at the same time, the response they got surprised them. Mm-hmm. And so they made these little figurines, about well, almost a foot tall, of each of the characters. They sculpted these things, sent them off to China, got them cast in metal, limited edition, all painted up, kind of stuff you'd find in the back of Silver Snail. And they put these up online and said, limited edition, yeah, we're selling them 80 bucks a pop. And they sold out like that wow. and with that alone they were able to finance their second season wow that's yeah pretty cool. so that's they didn't anticipate story. that it's a great story yeah and again every show has got a different audience it's a different genre your how you approach your audience is going to change what your monetization plans are you have to be in conversation with your audience so there isn't one standard business model rubber yeah. stamp well, you can follow isn't it, isn't it fair to say that that's exciting. still being kind of crafted in a way sure, if yeah. there ever will be a standard business model i mean i think exciting. some some standard business models will be found that yeah. can be adapted yeah but i don't think there's ever going to be one yeah now those days yeah. are gone yeah i was uh i was i don't know six months ago i get together with some people and a guy gets a phone call he gets off the phone call big smile on his face he goes yeah that was a guy a musician i used to listen to 25 years ago he just did a kickstarter campaign that i donated 50 bucks to they just finished filming the movie, and that was his personal phone call to me to thank me for the 50 bucks that I donated. There this guy actually sat down. He raised 385 grand. They filmed the film. He called every single person that donated. <laughs> and this is like 18 months. Hey, Scott. Yeah, it's Steve Taylor here. I just wanted to say a personal thank you. And this guy was like, I'm, I'm getting a shiver because of the way he told the story. <laughs> like, he was so blown away that he got this phone call from this guy, you know, to That's say awesome. thanks for the 50 bucks that you put into to my film. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I donated to a friend's film campaign. I have no idea. I think he's in Fiji right now. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel remiss yeah. with the Indiegogo stuff because we raised money. And then uh, there were, you, you promised these perks. You get like little right, yeah. Yeah, posters and TV shirts, t shirt yeah. And uh, the the last remaining perk was the DVD, the special edition DVD, <laughs> just for the Indiegogo supporters. Well, we've got them. 
You're yeah. in a box in the next room. I haven't mailed them out yet, but right. I got the list. I'm all set to do envelope stuffing. They got to go out. Yeah. It's only been a year and a half. <laughs> so tell me, only a year and a half. Yeah. So tell me uh, um, uh, a little bit more. You talked about yourself being uh, as being a bit of an activist. Well, tell me a bit more about that. Yeah. Well, part of that. I mean, you're just fed up. You're done. Well, yeah. With the, in terms of the broadcast industry, and in terms of just how policy is affecting. Uh, communications media it it i i've been really turned around over the last few years realizing that the the things that make it possible for us to do the web series the way that we're doing them right now that can be taken away very very quickly yeah. and very very easily and not just from uh, uh bureaucratic bumbling but from active work on the part of large media corporations, um, colluding with uh, government interests that do not align with the public good. Right. Um, the film and television industry, uh, the, the established film and television industry, hates what's going on with the web, just as the music industry does, because they don't like the idea that people can share, they don't like the idea that people can talk freely to each other, and they don't like the idea of, being able to, of people being able to create their own media. Right. And if they could shut that down, they would. That's why you're constantly seeing bills like in the States, SOPA, PIPA, uh, the CISPA, which is coming back again. It has to be defeated. Um, the the copyright like serials. Yeah, I know. Uh, ACTA CISPA? is... CISPA? <laughs> uh, the I don't know what the hell the acronyms are for, but it's uh, the, the SOPA was Stop Online Piracy Act. Oh, okay. And the, the yeah. CISPA one is sort of couched in terms of let's protect the children from pornography. And yet the provisions in have nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. It has everything to do with corporations being able to cut you off from access to the Internet right. or right. being able to overcharge you to have access to the Internet while they themselves cut a sweeter deal. So for an independent producer to be able to make work that can be freely seen on the, the, the net, right. that is being threatened. For someone to be able to exercise free speech on the net, that's being threatened. Uh, so uh, this really irks me. And the yeah. fact that uh, net neutrality is a big, huge deal with me because I, I keep going on about how net neutrality equals freedom of speech. What? I don't, okay, I don't know the term. What's net neutrality? Net neutrality means that you cannot charge for specific access to information across the net. If you want to set up a portal and say, I've got this information, you want to pay for it, great, you can do that. But you cannot define the net in these limited terms that allow it to become a series of gated communities. The net is supposed to be a free flow of information. The World Wide Web is supposed to be interconnected worldwide. It is. Tim Berners-Lee, the guy who made, created the World Wide Web, came up with the protocols that allowed the web to become what it is. He's a really strong proponent of net neutrality and talks about we have to have the ability to freely speak to each other. It's like you're walking down the street, you're talking with a friend, some guy in a business suit, thrusts himself in between you and says, hey, if you want to keep talking to your friend, you've got to spare a few minutes and I'll talk to you about my product. Hey, here, take yeah. a brochure while yeah. you're at it. Hey, but just one second before you continue your conversation. Yeah. You know, pay me some money. No. You know, if that happened on the street, I'd punch the guy in the throat. Right. So, yeah. you know, the, these are, these are, I'm not articulating it very well because I do get very impassioned about it. Yeah. But, um, I thought I, you were in it just for the money. Me? No. No, man. Because I'll take that money and I'll turn it around and I'll contribute it to causes. Tell me you actually got some moral fiber and conscience here, Rob. I try to hide it. You know, (laughs) don't want people to know. You're on the net now. You're not going to be able to hide a thing. It's true. There's no privacy on the net. Yeah, okay. I'm a nice guy. You're a nice guy. That's right. (laughs) Leave me alone. (laughs) So it is is the future. Is it the future of film and TV then? Uh, Yeah, I mean, you're always going to have film and theaters. 
but it's going to become more and more like opera, you know, where it's, it's, it's a much more expensive proposition yeah. to create. See, I'm old enough. I'm 47. I'm old enough to not want to watch TV on the internet. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, I don't know. It's not cool to me or it's not, it's not high enough quality or it's the screen's not big enough or whatever, you know? And I much prefer to see it on a, my big screen in the basement or, you know, well, I'm, but, but that's the thing, seeing it on the big screen in your basement. Yeah. Not that long ago. That, no, that didn't true. exist. That didn't even exist. Yeah, yeah. True. I remember uh, reading an interview. Uh, it was one of those Faber books on filmmaking, and it was all about Don Siegel, who was yep. uh, did Two Mules for Sister Sarah right. and a bunch of things. Right. All the Clint films. Uh, yes, yeah. Yes. Well, he was Clint. He was directorial That's mentor. Right. He, yep. he helped yep. Clint learn how to direct. Mules for Sister Sarah. I know. I know. How old are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 55. I saw it in the theaters when it first came out. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a long story. But um, he was mentioning it in an interview, talking about oh, he was talking to another director, and he says uh, he was mentioning a film he was referencing and saying, oh yeah, it should be something like blah blah blah. And uh, the other director says, I, I, I've never seen that film. He says, oh, you got to watch it. So they went to the studio, booked a screening room, wow. got the film pulled from the library, wow. and got yeah. a projectionist in yeah. so they could watch it. Yeah. This was in the early 70s. Wow. That's what it took to watch a film when you wanted to watch it. Well, I grew up at the library, Albion Library in Rexdale. We had to book a projector. Yep. We had to book the Laurel and Hardy movies two weeks before. And right. then we'd, order, we'd have friends over, order pizza in. I don't know, even know if you could order pizza then. It'd be like this big event. Yeah. Had to take a course on how to operate the projector. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. I was an AV geek at the school. Yeah. yeah. Charming on one hand, but when you just, you, in seconds, I could have it up on my Blackberry. Well, exactly. And I could be watching the Laurel and Hardy movie that, uh, yeah. That's exactly uh, it. Well, just talking Laurel and Hardy. Depends on the to, version of Blackberry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you're, you're raising your child up on Jackie Chan stuff, well, the first stuff I was showing Mike, it was Warner Brothers cartoons and Laurel and Hardy stuff. Yeah. So he's yeah. got an appreciation for black and white silent stuff that yeah, a lot of cool. other kids at school don't even know about. It. So, Rob, we're almost done. I oh! can't believe it. I know it's ridiculous, so we'll have to do this again. Can you tell me a little bit more about Rufus with two Fs? the dog and, oh. and that's your, your big production now that's that's, that's the of, main one we've got a, we've got one called rubber chicken players which hasn't right. launched yet i'm still okay. editing that and it's really stupid we're doing uh <laughs> feature films plays famous novels okay uh but they each episode lasts maybe 30 seconds yeah so death of a salesman sh- curtains part chicken knocks on the door with he's got a little suitcase knocks on the door and a big safe drops down <laughs> curtains closed that's it Fun. so it's that sort of thing we've done 2001 space odyssey braveheart uh, 12 angry men uh, the list goes on and on cool. we did, we've shot 40 we've got scripts for another 60 wow yeah it's kind of nutty yeah so good. that that's that's going to be coming out soon but the rufus project the overall rufus project we've got storybooks based on the original shows that are uh, being put together for print to order uh we've got new episodes called rufus rhymes which are four and a half minutes uh each and it's all taking taking the piss out of mother goose and having a lot of fun with that sort of deconstructing how, how rhymes nursery rhymes work but at the same time having fun with it and being silly and goofy. Uh, the Rufus Steampunk Adventure, which is going to be this 45-minute long epic with uh, first time we'll combine live actors with our puppet characters mm. for this stuff. So we'll have the full steampunk stuff, people in corsets and ray guns and goggles and airships, oh my. And that'll be a lot of fun. And there's uh, we're putting together a trailer for a longer uh, feature film length, but we're probably going to break it into um, uh, serialized uh, components, uh, which is definitely not a, a kid's thing. It's uh, the the working title is Asteroids, but we have to change that because of the, the game and its sure, studios. Yeah. Sort of one of my kind. favorites. Yeah, but it's it's not that game. It's right. something else. Okay. But it's a it's a science fiction epic war 
adventure thing that goes really dark. <laughs> Sounds pretty cool. All, all to be aired on the internet. Yeah? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So let's uh, screw Rob, TV, Rob, screw Rob, film. That's right. Internet rules. That's right. That's <laughs> Robbo Mills. R O B B O Mills. M I L L S. dot net. That's his website. And then Rufus the Dog. dot net. That's with two Fs. Check it out. I'm sure you can access Rob uh, if you so desire. So if mm-hmm. Rob, one last question: If TV is chewing gum for the eyes, what's the internet to the eyes? Oh, the internet. Depends what porn site you're on. <laughs> Great. 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 Former director of CBC Kids, folks. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, it did seem to want to go there, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it could be termed chewing gum for the brain. Depends how you use it. Yeah. It's a tool. Yeah. It's a tool. No, the difference between it and television? It's television oh, is a top down feeder. Yeah. And the internet is you go in there, you roll up your sleeves, and you make it what you want to make it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really accurate and pretty wise and pretty helpful. Thank you for my pleasure. Uh, Thanks being for here today. Me. Hopefully, we'll, we'll have you back. Yay! There's our audience.